Welcome to Book Club. I'm really into fun facts. Julie mm-hmm. has an endless array of pop culture knowledge. Mm-hmm. Overall, I would say I liked it. Something about the way she writes is like really concrete and immediate. Who is this man? Why is he in this costume? <laughs> you know, like, why did he drop a squid? Like, you like teased some juicy deets about the creation of this book. This is, again, what Victoria finds interesting, not, like, what is actually most important about these uh-huh. people. What stories are we going to tell ourselves about this year? Welcome to the party. Welcome, guys. Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. We are two roommates and friends since high school who read a book and talk about it each episode. This is a podcast where we explore new perspectives and use books as a tool for personal and community growth. This week, we are reading The Rosie Project by Graham Simpson, and we will be talking about the entire book. So if you're a person who cares about spoilers, you have been warned. If you've already read the book or you just don't care about those spoilers, welcome to the party. Welcome! We're back! (laughs) Season seven, we're back with the books. It's been a bit since we recorded a full-length book episode. It's been a long time. Very excited. Yeah. Yeah. Especially to be doing this book in particular. Um, Yeah. I feel like so much time has passed since we started this podcast and no time at all. Yeah. We're coming up on like our two year, which, you know, for a hobby (laughs) is substantial. (laughs) There are a few hobbies I've stuck with that long. Yeah. At first I was going to say there are no hobbies. And then I remembered I spent about half my life uh, studying the clarinet. So yeah. I feel like, <laughs> you know, this is probably hobby number two yeah. on the longevity list. Honestly, yeah. And especially in my adult life. Oh, yeah. For sure in my adult life. I yeah. like, I'm the type of person who took a six-week Jap- Japanese class and then never <laughs> touched it again. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I played kickball one summer. Yeah. Never played again. We did kickboxing for a year. Yes. And a half? A year? Uh, It was a year. I think it was less than a year. Okay. Well, never mind. We did it for a substantial amount of time that we bought ourselves our own punching bag in our basement so we can continue kickboxing. But let me tell you, I have not punched it in at least three months because it's been so dang cold in our... (laughs) It's been very cold. And our uh, basement is not heated. But yeah. that is changing. Mm-hmm. Speaking of cold, uh, when I read The Rosie Project, it was over Valentine's Day weekend. Um, yeah. So it's been a little bit since I initially read it. And I just remember it was so freezing cold. And I was in my... I sleep in, like, shorts and a tank top because I get too warm in anything else sleeping. Yeah. But then I'll throw, like, a fuzzy robe on in the morning. Um, but I sat on the couch to read for a little bit and you come down like three hours later and I'm like shivering because yeah. I'm sitting right next to the window in a bathrobe and I'm like, <laughs> I'm so cold. And you look at me like, yeah, you idiot. Put some, put some layers on. I'm, I'm like, was... but I'm finishing the book. I'm almost yeah. there. <laughs> you were so excited. Like I just, I came downstairs and Victoria's face just like lit up and she was like, I love this book. <laughs> and I... To be honest, wasn't sure if you were wearing anything underneath your bathrobe, <laughs> and you didn't have... Did you have a blanket? I don't even know. I don't know. even know. I was like, you're wearing no clothing <laughs> sitting next to the... In the coldest spot in our home. What are you doing? But she was having a blast, so... Because it's a good book. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. my Valentine's Day treat to myself. Yeah. My uh, 
partner, we celebrated at a different time because we were not in the same location for Valentine's Day. And so for the weekend, it was just Julie and I here at home. We had mm-hmm. plans to finish watching um, Yuri on Ice. A yes, we did. anime series together. And we made a bunch of snacks. But besides that, I didn't really have anything else going on. So I was like, yeah. this is my, like treat for myself is I'm not going to do anything but sit and read this like lovely romance comedy it's very topical yeah it works it works very well and I made myself cookies which everyone else got to enjoy too those strawberry chocolate oh yeah 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 yeah. the Neapolitan or Mm -hmm. whatever yeah I read this book I've been racking my brain ever since we decided to do this Mm mm-hmm I was like, when the hell did I read this book? Because <laughs> I'm guessing it was when I was in college, I think. Um, but I can't remember the context. I can't remember who recommended it to me. Because I have never read, of my own volition, any other romance novel. Ever. That's just not something that I just like picked up off the shelves. Right. And so I'm pretty sure someone recommended it to me, and I have this vague sense that it was during college at some point. Well, it came out in 2013, so it would have had to have been in college or after. Right. And and I'm like... And I remember I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was really cute. Um, and I related a lot to it, and now I'm laughing at myself because I'm like... I read this book and I did the same exact thing Don did where he goes and teaches the class about autism and then comes and sits down with his friends and they're like, so did it sound like anyone you know? And he's like, yeah, my friend from this other department, he definitely is on the spectrum. And they're just like, oh my God, Don, you're so clueless. And I did the same exact thing. I read this book and was like, wow, this sounds a lot like me. And then did not draw the inevitable conclusion that I was also autistic. And it makes me laugh now. That's I'm funny. Like, I didn't realize it was like pre-diagnosis Oh, for yeah. This, yeah. It was... Or like pre-consideration, like exploration yeah. phase. I, like, that wasn't the reason I read it. Which yeah. just blows my mind. I'm like, why? <laughs> there must have been something in me. Because I know even in high school, I had a very strong pull towards any kind of mental disability related story. Mm-hmm. Even if it was really depressing or really terribly represented or whatever. And I wrote, I, you know, I look at stories that I wrote in my teen years And I had a couple that were about people who had this sort of undefined mental disability. Yeah. So maybe that was part of the draw. I don't know. I really don't know. But uh, I did not make the connection to myself at all until years later. And now I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh my god. I do so many of the... We both do Aikido! <laughs> I laughed really hard at that point. When he's Me like... Too. There's like a, a sentence in it where Don's saying like, why why engage in chit-chat and like, you know, surface level conversation that's 15 minutes I could be practicing Aikido back at home. Yeah. And I'm like, this is Julia. This is Julia! <laughs> <laughs> I literally... I mean... Uh, 
I love swords. <laughs> I love... So when I saw that there were swords involved with this martial art, I was like, sign me the hell up. <laughs> Get me in there. Into that dojo. Um, yeah. I just... It dawned on me one day that I wanted to do a martial art and there wasn't any kickboxing nearby. And I was like, swords. Swords. I barely even got to touch the swords because I was doing like preliminary stuff and then COVID hit and so obviously you can't sweat together in a box but because <laughs> that's what a dojo is it's just a square room with a yeah. mat and anyway <laughs> but yeah so that that definitely made me laugh and I was like how did I not see it <laughs> I don't know so I hadn't really heard of this book before. So when I picked it up to read, the only thing I knew was what I read on the back cover. And it was interesting to me that Graham Simpson, his like first career was as an IT consultant. And um, I'm currently working in slash transitioning out of an IT role. So I was like, oh, hey, me too. <laughs> but it reminded me also of like Jasmine Guillory and some other authors that we've talked on the podcast who are like second career writers. Mm-hmm. And this is just my limited biased perspective. But I feel often that writers who've had a career outside of literature writing um that publishing world can sometimes bring like that extra layer to the careers and like depth of experience that their characters have um in their novels and stuff and I know Don Tillman isn't a IT consultant um but it it does feel that like uh Graham Simpson was like intimately familiar with academia in a way that he could write it that it was like relevant to the love story it wasn't just the oh it's a thing he does on the side and we don't really know what his job is and he's like I work at a university and then Mm -hmm. you just move on it's like it's like focused in and and his work actually becomes like very integral to like the plot of the story Mm mm-hmm and how, like, the characters know each other and stuff. So, all that to say, if you're 50 years old, like Graham Simpson, and you think, maybe I could write fiction, you probably could. And you should write your book. Yeah. We'd love to read it. Yeah, I think it's interesting the two examples you gave are both romance writers. And, like, there's probably something to be said about people who have lived lives outside of being writers writing romances. Because, like... The majority of people who fall in love are not writers, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So, like, in order to give a good representation of, like, how people fall in love, I think it's it's an asset. Yeah. To have done a different career. So, a little bit more about Graham Simpson. He is an Australian author. I think the second Australian author we've covered on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Graham Simpson is a screenwriter, playwright, um, and after a career in data modeling and IT, Simpson started writing fiction around the age of 50. Um, he started screenwriting and producing a film. Um, he did, like, a full-length, like, 90-minute film, like, just on Whoa. his own. Um, he was inspired by reading uh, Joe Queenan's The Unkindest Cut. And Simpson said in an interview... Uh, Quote, we cast friends, borrowed equipment, and managed to spend way too much on what turned out to be a pretty mediocre (laughs) result. Um, But a seed was planted. And in the next five years, Simpson wrote a stage play um, that was what ended up being The Rosie Project, realized that he wanted to make it into a novel. And eventually, um, in 2013, The Rosie Project was published um, and was a big hit uh, in both uh, Australia, the U.S., 
uh, the UK, um, and kind of launched his writing career. He con followed it up with The Rosie Effect um, in 2014. Um, he wrote a couple other novels and uh, then wrote The Rosie Result. So this is part one of a trilogy mm. about Don Tillman. And one of my favorite bits that I learned is that his wife, Anne Buist, is also kind of like a second career writer. Mm. Um, she was the one who had originally drafted that Screen, uh, that screenplay he he produced, um, it was based off of a script his wife, his wife wrote, and they are publishing a sequel, uh, Two Steps Onward, this year. It's a sequel to their first book they did together, Two Steps Forward. It came out a few years ago, but they're a co-writing duo. It's so Cute. fun. I love it. I'm like, I want your love story. That's a fun um, retirement project. Yeah. I don't remember exactly what her first career was. I think it was psychology... It might have been in academia. Like, that might be his kind of entry point to understanding mm -hmm. the world that he writes Don Tillman in. Mm -hmm. but yeah. He's an interesting guy. Yeah. You can find him on Twitter. So, this book uh, follows the journey of Don Tillman, who is an academic. He sort of looks around his life and he realizes that he doesn't have a lot of people in it. And just his friend... Uh, gene, which I just realized, isn't Gene a geneticist? Yeah. Oh my god. That's a terrible pun that I just picked up on it. <laughs> I thought that too. I was like, that's funny, but also it seems like way too obvious. Way too on the nose. Yeah. Um, anyway. Because it's spelled like gene, like mm -hmm. genome, G-E-N-E. And he's like, I have all the qualities that women seem to be looking for. And I would really like to have a serious relationship, but I don't really know how. And his friend Gene sets him up with women, and it always goes terribly. And so he's like, I need to turn this into some kind of data-collecting experiment to try and figure out a way to optimize how to find the perfect wife for me, or the perfect woman for me. And so he starts this thing called the Wife Project, which is basically just a very long questionnaire of, like, do they fit certain qualifications? And they have to meet a certain score in order to, like, be successful or whatever. And then he meets this woman named Rosie, who, like, just totally demolishes the Wife Project. She doesn't fit any of the things that he thought were important. But he had fun, and she uh, needs his help finding her real father, or so she thinks. And so he deludes himself into thinking he's doing it just because of the academic side of the project. They sort of go on this covert operation to, like, test, like, 40 different men's genes in order to find her real father, and they end up falling in love, and, um, it's very cute. Yes. Hijinks ensue. <laughs> Hijinks ensue. He learns, he learns a lot of new things, and they learn how to communicate, and it's cute. He's portrayed as this very, uh, schedule-oriented person. He, like, makes his life very efficient for yeah. the things that he finds you know, pleasure in, you know, focusing on things like, I'm going to practice Aikido, and, like, I don't want to sit and talk with a stranger for 15 minutes and make right. small chat. Like, no. Um, and I particularly enjoyed his 
approach towards cooking where he mm. has like the same thing every like every Monday it's the same thing every Tuesday yeah. it's the same thing and so then it like maximizes his ingredients because then he doesn't have a bunch of random ingredients but he makes like these like gourmet involved yeah. meals that sound delicious yeah and in my uh he has of, lobster every Tuesday my right? background research uh Graham Simpson I don't know who he worked with on it but put out like a kind of a companion book but it's like a, a recipe book using Don Tillman's recipes Whoa. that they like discuss in the in the book so it's really funny yeah something i didn't say in the summary that i assume is is obvious based on how we introduce the book but dawn is autistic ah oh, yes we should probably say that again um but he doesn't really he, he doesn't, doesn't really know. know that he is though he knows like i considered weird and yeah. i think other people are weird cuz i don't understand them yeah. all the time and I sometimes have sensory overload and mm-hmm. um, a lot of things that you, he just, yeah, hasn't quite pieced it yeah. together or named it for himself. Yeah. This podcast is made possible by our fantastic book club members. You can support the show by becoming a member on buymeacoffee.com slash book club with JV. Starting at $3 per month, book club members can connect with fellow listeners, help us select books for future episodes, unlock exclusive posts and messages, get early and discounted access to future events, and more. And if you want to take your support to the next level, you can join the TISM tier, which starts at $5 per month. The TISM tier is all about autism. Are you an autistic person looking for community? A possible neurodiverse person looking for resources? Or an ally hoping to learn more from an actual autistic person? Members of this tier get free access to Julia's autism-related articles on Medium. The best part of any book club, besides the books, is the community. So join us in our growing community of book nerds by becoming a member of the book club today. Follow the link in our show notes or go to buymeacoffee.com slash bookclubwithjv to join the party. That's buymeacoffee.com slash bookclubwithjv. We'll see you there. They make it very clear to you by, like, having him substitute teach, like, a group of students and their parents about autism. And he's supposed to pick up from context clues that that's what he has, and but he obviously doesn't. Um, which I think leads us very nicely to our <laughs> first topic, which is... Um, the way that, like, the entire book is just dramatic irony. The entire book mm-hmm. is the reader and all the other characters in the book, except for Don, know something, know a lot of things about him that he does not. and Or they know, the reader knows what Rosie is trying to tell him, and he doesn't get it. And so he has a different interpretation or like he walks into a gay bar and you're given like some indicators at the beginning that the bouncers think he doesn't know what this place is. And so they're like, are you sure this is where you want to be? And he's like, yeah, I've been to a bar before. (laughs) And he walks in and these two men walk up to him and he describes what they're wearing. So you're like, oh, okay, I know who these people are. But he's like, wow, they're so friendly. They want to buy me a drink, you know? And so then you have a little chuckle to yourself and 
situations like that where you're like, oh, I understand what people are trying to say and failing very badly to say, and Don isn't getting it. Mm -hmm. And so you're sort of following him as he tries to navigate and uncover those unspoken things that everyone's trying to get him to understand. Yeah. Usually I'm not a fan of dramatic irony. Yeah. Um, in high school, I think it was our freshman year mm-hmm. literature course, we were learning about the different types of irony used in literature and dramatic irony when uh, the audience knows something that one or all of the characters doesn't know is the pinnacle example usually is Romeo and Juliet. And that's yeah. what we read as kind of the example of dramatic mm-hmm. irony of like the audience knows that Romeo sent a letter, but it didn't get there. And then the audience also knows that Juliet is faking, poisoning herself. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the letter Juliet sent, Romeo didn't get it. I don't remember. <sighs> I still Juliet's not dead. That's the Juliet's most important information. And that we all know that, but yeah. Romeo doesn't. And he yeah. comes in and he kills himself anyway. And then Juliet comes out of her little trance sleep and was like, oh no, he died. And she kills herself too. And the whole thing could have been avoided if people just talked to each other yeah. or maybe thought a little bit before uh, killing themselves killing themselves dramatically. Ugh. Yeah. Anyways, sorry. This is not very elegant in my speech right now because I just, I just it, don't find it that interesting. And I yeah. also get really uncomfortable when, like, uh, whenever humor is, like, because someone doesn't know the social yeah. rules makes me super uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, that's not funny to me. It took me, like years to ever even kind of like the movie elf Um, oh my gosh do not get me started about the movie elf (laughs) elf gets me on the floor in a ball like on the verge of tears or screaming or something it makes me so unbelievably uncomfortable because the whole thing is just you laughing at his expense because mm-hmm. he is breaking so many rules so blatantly and so loudly, and no one will tell him, and it's just, oh my god, it's so uncomfortable. Yeah, or everyone tells him, but, like, not in a way that he, not in an empathetic way that he no. can, like, understand. They and just ridicule him. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yes. So I have a hard time with that movie. Obviously, Julia does, too. Yeah. This, back to the book. All this to say, I don't typically like dramatic irony, but when Julia pointed out, oh yeah, this book is all dramatic irony, I was like, you're right, and I actually like it. Yeah. Because there's context for it, and it's not at Don's expense that we find it funny. We find it funny because we're like, I relate. Like, oh yeah. my gosh, that is a really weird phrase we say. Yeah. And we don't always understand each other. Or like... Don is just a very lovable character in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's, like, frustrating when, like, you're frustrated for him. Like, you're on his side, yes. I guess, through it all. And it's told from his perspective. And yeah. the dramatic irony isn't like, oh, look how, you know, stupid Don is. He yeah. just doesn't get it. It's more like, see these weird ways that we communicate mm-hmm. and that neurotypical people expect everyone to understand. But in reality, a lot of us don't neurodiverse and neurotypical don't always communicate well and the phrases we use like tell me something i don't know like sarcastically if you don't have the subtext of what's going on like don responds with a fun fact which i think is a really great fun fact um (laughs) yes the testicles of drone bees and wasp spiders explode during sex (laughs) yeah i didn't know that thanks (laughs) 
Thanks for telling me, Don. Um, but if you don't get the subtext of what Rosie was saying right. sarcastically, you miss it. And yeah, yeah, it's it makes it more understandable yeah. than like, oh, let's all point and laugh. Yeah. I also think the fact that this is a book. And so I think a lot of people can empathize with the way that tone doesn't always come across over text. Mm. Because I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I think trying to communicate over the internet sort of has made a lot of people, a lot of neurotypical people empathize a bit more with what it's like for autistic people to talk face to face. Because the you're getting the same amount of information that I yeah. get in person. We were talking about how, like, the phrase, tell me something I don't know, a genuine question, versus tell me something I don't know, sarcasm. The only difference <laughs> is the inflection on the don't um, to indicate that it's over-exaggerated, mm-hmm. right? As in, because I'm over-exaggerating this word don't, that actually means that I do know it. Which is, like, so, there's so many complex layers to that one thing. And, like, And the fact that it's referring back to what you said, not asking something more of you. Exactly. Yeah. It's a statement, not a question, as well, which is only communicated through inflection. And so, like, you get a sense of it when you're reading a book that, like, oh, yeah, when I'm texting someone, if I don't use, like capital letters or italics or like you know emojis Mm -hmm. that's why we developed the kind of texting language that we have is to like help like bridge that gap a little bit so people understand your tone so yeah i think that also helps that's a really good point i hadn't thought about that like how important it was that it's that it's in a novel form for us to like understand exactly through don's eyes yeah because the kind of like, I forget what you would call it, but like the adjectives used of like how that person spoke, mm-hmm. you know, like Julie said it sarcastically, like mm-hmm. you can write that out. And so you can get Don's perspective. The line is, tell me something I don't know, said Rosie for no obvious reason. Yeah. Like it gives the pers- like it gives you, like Don didn't pick up any inflection there. Yeah. That was, yeah. Know, to let him know that, you know, it wasn't like said Rosie sarcastically or right <laughs> yeah or it didn't it didn't italicize the don't which right. is I think how other authors would do it which makes me kind of nervous because I know they've been trying to make a film adaptation for a while mm-hmm. and I'm very curious how you would make this story translate to screen because it like in order to make sure that it re- retains that perspective so that you empathize more with him. Mm-hmm. Because in in the case of a film, the audience would be using their own eyes to see these people, not Don's. Mm-hmm. And so you'd have to do some pretty clever kind of editing and, like, angles and, you know, the language of film to, like, make sure that you get that viewpoint exactly right. And that would make me kind of nervous. But the other thing that's so aggravating... In this book that I think all readers end up empathizing with. And correct me if I'm wrong. But you get so frustrated that no one tells him. Mm-hmm. You're just like, why doesn't anyone tell him what he's missing? Yeah. Because, like, so many people, you get this sense that they're just like, 
is he they don't know if he's doing this on purpose or if he just genuinely doesn't know and like they're afraid that it's going to be considered rude if they correct him or explain or whatever mm-hmm. and like it's so frustrating because it's like if someone were just to tell him like there's things that he learns because of Rosie where she'll explain something to him she's mm-hmm. the only one who does yeah She'll explain something to him and then he'll start noticing the pattern. And so then he learns how to communicate better with his colleagues because he like picks up on certain things that they won't tell him. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, you just gotta tell people. I can't tell you how many times I've like learned something way later than everyone else. And I'm like, why didn't anyone freaking tell me? That's all it was. And now I can spot it and know how to respond properly. And it's, Ugh. I got a book from the Scholastic Book Fair when I was in grade school. This is the nerd I was. I had my mom get me <laughs> the Scholastic Book of Idioms. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I got a dictionary and a spelling like, oh my God. thing as well. It was like a whole set. But I was really excited about the Book of Idioms. Uh-huh. And anytime we get into these conversations about things that we just didn't realize what they meant. I'm like, why do we even have a whole book of idioms? It's just like, it just tells you all these things like, Mm -hmm. like the phrase monkey's uncle or whatever, Mm -hmm. or um, the one that (laughs) is like a point of laughter with my family because it was harmless, but I did not understand that saving for a rainy day meant something other than literally saving money for when it's raining outside and you want to go bowling. Mm. Like, oh, it's raining on the weekend and mom and dad want to take us somewhere fun. Now we have money to go bowling because we saved it for a rainy day. I was in high school, maybe college. Oh my God. (laughs) When my mom, oh, I must have been in high school because I I was like, mom, I have this like, um, I got this birthday money, but I'm not really sure what I want to do with it. Um if there's anything I want. And she's like, we'll just save it for a rainy day. And I was like, mom, we live in Bakersfield. It's a desert. It doesn't rain here. And she's like, (laughs) oh, honey. (laughs) And that's what I learned. Um, And it comes up at least once a year at family events. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, there's just like all those little things that we, we don't pick up. And I think part of it too, similar to we've talked before, words that you've always read, but you never quite learned how to right. say them or right. quite what they mean. Um, yeah. I attribute many of those like flubs in my understanding of <laughs> what things mean to the fact that I just read a lot. So I'm always yeah. like, yes, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Not along because I'm well read and I've heard these words before, yeah. but it's like, oh, I don't know what that means. Yeah. In the end, really appreciated that this was probably the first book I read with an autistic main character where you weren't laughing at him mm-hmm. you know the comedy comes from the perspective his, the comedy comes from his perspective and the realization that people say weird things mm-hmm. and it doesn't make any sense and he so it, his perspective serves as a kind of critique but in a comical way um, rather than the comedy coming from a movie like Elf, where you're looking on the outside and going, wow, he is doing so many dumb things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the critique isn't like, 
oh, New York is so weird. There's just candy on the street. It's like, oh, look how stupid he is that he's eating the bubble gum off yeah. the railing that someone, yeah. you know, stuck there after they chewed. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. And something that uh, is really important when it comes to representation, right? Where, like... um the marginalized perspective should not be the butt of the joke. Mm -hmm. It should, like, there's a way to be funny um, when talking about, you know, not the dominant perspective that, like, is clever and not, like, damaging. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. And the fact that, like, you know, it's written by a apparently not autistic person though because he says in the back of the book he's like i knew a lot of autistic people and i'm like bro (laughs) you nailed it a little too well i think maybe there's some unexamined you're don chillmaning yourself (laughs) yes i think he is that's my theory but i would need to meet him to know for sure so uh i think something the book does well is encourage everyone to kind of examine their own relationships mm-hmm. um, and the way that they make friends or date or whatever, because it's sort of taking that step back and being like, ah, yeah, this is kind of weird. How do I do this? Yeah. Did it bring up anything for you in that regard? Oh, so many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> my one of my like first like crushes like do you like me yes or no note passing in class Mm -hmm. um I I marked yes to his note and sent it back and then we were like a little bit of a thing for I want to say days like it it doesn't it wasn't even that long but in the note passing I said yes I like you but I don't want to date until high school what I meant in my mind was I don't want to date anyone. Like, I'm not open to dating right now. Uh-huh. I am a child. <laughs> I am eight. <laughs> and um, I was a little closer to high school than that. But oh, okay. um, I was still like, I don't want to date until I'm in high school. Right. Uh, the person interpreted it as we are an item, but we will not be official until we are in high school. How does that work? Like, I like you, but I, I, let's not date until high school. Okay. But instead of, like, let's, I just said, I don't want to. Right. So there was a clear misunderstanding, but of course, like, juvenile communication skills going on. And there was more note passing. And, like, I mean, we, what makes me laugh is that I was, like, this person's so great and we have such good conversations. And I remember, like, this one day, like, at gym class, we had, like, just free time outside, basically. There was no structured activity. We just, like, walked and talked. I'm like, wow, we communicate so well. And then I was, like... When it, the realization that this person was going around telling people, like, yeah, we're basically dating, but it's not official oh yet. God. I, like, panicked and then, like, wrote a note. <laughs> Apparently my communication skills were not great to uh, bring it up face-to-face um, and wrote the note being, like, yeah, we're not a thing. Sorry, bye. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the, the, the earliest memories of mm. communication gone awry. Thankfully, I've graduated beyond note passing and used I'm my... Really glad. Uh, <laughs> use more words nowadays but um it made me think also of many of the conversations I've had with friends who like myself have spent time at all on dating apps oh yeah where you have 
you basically have Don's wife project questionnaire mm-hmm. to fill out. Mm-hmm. And especially the apps that, I mean, it's been a couple of years since I've been on them, but <laughs> back in my day. <laughs> uh, and I know many apps still have this feature where you can filter out certain yeah. characteristics. So yeah. you can be like, absolutely no smokers. Yeah. You can be like, absolutely no one who wants kids. Yeah. Or you can do it by race, which gets like... That gets real that's, dicey. That's the conversation that comes up. It's like, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Or like religion. And, and even then, like, when you say uh, that you were quote unquote spiritual in your bio, that can mean so many things. Right. Or like for myself, you know, I, I would say I'm a Christian, but there are many Christians who'd be like, I don't... I don't right. drive with whatever you're right. doing over there. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's, it's helpful in a way. Cause you're like, okay, I can make sure that I'm only dating people who live around me. Like, I don't want to start right. a long distance relationship or, um, I want to have kids someday. That's important to me. Talking about this book now. And I look back on the way that I tried to make friends in college something I've said many times, I did not know how. I did Mm. not know how to make friends. I didn't know how I had made the friends that I already had. You know, it was sort of like we were both me and this friend that I had made as a child or in high school were both already very weird and saw each other every day. And so it was like, well, us weirdos have to stick together, I guess. You know, I like I just I had no concept of how one goes about making friends. And so what I did was I analyzed the relationships I already had and tried to find some unifying characteristics, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, what are some things that I have in common with all of my best friends? And the number one thing on there is books. And I was like, well, I guess I have to find book people. That was bring me the book people. Bring me the book people. And I was like, okay, so where do I find book people? I was like, well, I'm an English major, so I can find them in class. A lot of those are assholes. Uh, I was like, okay, well, I have some special interests that have a lot of overlap with books. So like maybe I could find them there. Um, and I had grown up going to Christian schools. Um And going to church until a certain point in my teenage years. And the friends that I had made in those Christian spaces were all big readers and, like, deep thinkers. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I need, like, a Christian space. And they were all, for the most part, very shallow people who did not like books. And I was like, well, what's going on? I don't understand. All the things that I did before didn't work. And I had these sort of qualifications in my head of what I needed to find in a friend. Um, And I think it really started to click for me when I went abroad. And I realized when I came across some pretty stark cultural differences and I was interacting with people from multiple countries and I could not predict who I was going to click with and who I wasn't. And... I had to do some adjusting. I mean, one of my best friends from London, who I'm still pretty close with, she, my first impression of her was like, no. (laughs) She is way too outgoing. We would never get along. It would never work. And we ended up being like super close the rest of my time there. And she sort of weaseled her way into my life. And um, 
sort of like Rosie and Don in a platonic way. Um, and so I sort of had to kind of get this understanding of like, you don't know who you're going to click with. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of need to practice showing up and being yourself and seeing what sticks yeah. and hope that everyone else does the same. Because, I mean, you have no idea, you know? And it, it helps if you have shared interests. But a lot of times it's just proximity. Mm -hmm. Like, some of my best friends from college were just people I lived in my freshman dorm with. And we, there were five of us and we sort of banded together. And we're like, I don't hate you. Would you like to live with me next year? <laughs> yeah. You know? And then it was just because we were around each other all the time, we became very close. Or mm -hmm. um, one of my friends I was just in most classes with, you know? And so that, we just spend a lot of time together and got to know each other and I really related to his confusion and trying to find some common factors and that didn't work at all and then someone just sort of barrels into his life and is like ah! and he's like you're interesting I'm gonna follow that <laughs> yeah. chaos whatever that is this was something I was seeing about the other day I was getting very sentimental <laughs> mm -hmm. with Vern and I was like isn't it crazy that like we met on a dating app like we were in a space that both of us were like hello I would like a relationship <laughs> <laughs> this is me <laughs> would you like to talk um <laughs> but otherwise it could have been as easy as I didn't go on a dating app that day yeah. and I was you know shown a different picture a different day or I misjudged something and was like eh, I don't know or you know if we, we actually had several false starts of trying to schedule an actual first date. Um, mm. And then he ended up being out of town. And it also makes me laugh because he suggested getting coffee at like eight in the morning before work. <laughs> I was like, do you know me? Oh <laughs> Obviously God. he didn't. It was our first date. Um, but <laughs> then my, I had a family member pass away and I was like, I'm so sorry to cancel. I know this sounds like a like, oh, not real excuse, but yeah. like, my, my family member died. I'm gone. And like of all those things, if we hadn't like pushed through or if, you know, mm -hmm. the, the chance meeting almost as it were wouldn't have happened, you know, we would have, we would have been fine, I'm sure, but we would have missed out on this really great yeah. relationship we have now. Um, yeah. And it, it feels like that with so many friendships where like proximity is a big part of it. Yeah. But sometimes the reason you're in proximity is so happenstance. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And like so many little decisions that could have, you know, changed something. Like, if my parents had been I, yeah. like, you know what? We can't afford that school. All my high school friends would be different. Yeah. Which are a huge chunk of my friends. Yeah. <laughs> or if I would have been like, I'm going to that college, not this one. That's the other chunk of my friends. <laughs> I also probably wouldn't live here. If yeah. you didn't go to school in the Midwest, I don't think I would have ended up in Chicago. That's a chunk of my friends. Yeah. I also think, you know, our relationship story, like, <laughs> if there had been anyone else sitting there that day, like, it just so happened that people were doing other things, and it was just the two of us sitting under the tree, and you were reading. Like, if there had been anyone else there, I don't know if I would have talked to you, you know? Yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, there's so many things that you just, you just kind of have to follow the vibe. Mm -hmm. And it's, which were, you know, for people who have a hard time tapping into that vibe yeah. and following their instincts. Who People who have been told that their instincts are wrong and so they don't trust them, mm -hmm. that is incredibly terrifying and confusing. Like, 
how the hell am I supposed to tell? Yeah. You know? So. And I, yes, yeah. bringing it back to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I can talk about that. I find all of this so fascinating. <laughs> Friendship, love, romance. Yeah. Chance encounters. Chance um, encounters. But Don and Rosie. Yes. Why they work. Rosie tumbles into his life mm-hmm. um, through a misunderstanding. Yeah. Jean, like, sends her his way to help with her project, right? I don't even well, remember. I think Jean wants to, he sees this as an opportunity to present Don with a person who does not match his qualifications and also to seem like he's helping Rosie. Doesn't he want to sleep with her? She's like the one student that like won't deal with his BS. Yeah. Like, I I didn't realize it till later, but when Don is trying to talk with Jean after one of his classes, Rosie's there and she's the one that's, he's like, oh, like, let's get coffee and chat more. And she's like, no, like, (laughs) that's, that's not what I'm here for. Like. I don't remember where I pieced it together later, but it was like such a small callback because it all is all from Don's perspective and he right. didn't know Rosie at the time to right. be able to identify her. Um, uh, but yeah, so Rosie and Don, mm-hmm. yeah, breaks so much of the mold that Don thinks he wants, but there's also some parts of it. And I think he's already starting to unravel where um, he says no drinkers and then but he drinks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's like, okay, okay, maybe drink sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I appreciate the uh, the line later on in the book when he realizes, like, he wasn't looking for... The questionnaire wasn't to find someone that he could ap- accept, but it was to find someone that would accept him. Like, he was mm-hmm. like, these, like, subconsciously, he's like, these are all the things that might be a reason someone doesn't want to be with me. Yeah. So I need to make sure we're aligned so I can mm-hmm. find that person. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, also kind of sad. Yeah. It's like, Don, you are worthy. Yeah. Sort of two things that I get from them is, like, number one, Rosie's, I've said, I said this already, but Rosie's really the only person who explains when she's joking. And mm-hmm. she doesn't every time. Sometimes she just laughs. Or if she's being sarcastic. Or if she has, if she'll say, like, rhetorical questions. Mm-hmm. Like, she's the only one in his life who will do that. Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of why he feels this sense of intrigue. Um, and, like, he can actually talk to her. Even though he finds a lot of her external qualities very stressful and confusing, he still understands her more than other people because she actually takes the time to tell him. Mm-hmm. Um if there's context that he's missing. And again, not every single time, um, but more than other people will. And like, specifically, you're contrasting her with Jean, who like, everything he does with John, with Don is just for his own personal amusement. And Don has no idea. And it pisses me off to no end. I hate him so much. Yeah, Jean is... He sucks. We don't even have time. We don't want to go into it. He's not worth it. (laughs) So the way that Don is just so straightforward, um, Mm -hmm. he doesn't have an agenda, disarms people because they they assume he does in some ways. And they assume a lot of people do. And and Rosie's the type of character who's like, she's like, had it up to here with anyone who's got an agenda. Like, she doesn't want to like mess around with Jean. And she's like, you're a professor. Like, answer my question. Like, yeah. 
don't put me through this. Like, show me some respect. And she wants to be, like, appreciated for who she is. And she has all these qualifications that actually make her more aligned with the type of person that Dawn is looking for. Like, she's a student. She's highly educated. She's incredibly smart. And, like, he doesn't find this out till way later because she's just, like, it wasn't important to tell you because I I am also, you know, what he calls a barmaid. Um, She works at a bar and that's part of who she is and she owns it. Mm -hmm. And I think that Don not having an agenda and just being able to be straight with her is like the type of person that Rosie needs. Mm -hmm. It's hard to imagine her with anyone else, really. Yeah. That was going to like be smooth or anything. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, this book does an excellent job of showing the strengths of autism and that sort of autistic communication. He, like, things that you can tell that she appreciates about him. Like, he has a really good memory. He's very dedicated. He's very open and direct, like you said. He's very thoughtful. Um, You know he cares very clearly. And when... His goal in anything he does is the thing in and of itself, you know? Um, And that's something that I and my autistic friends talk about all the time is, like, how we... That sort of disconnect between us and other people where, like, people suspect us of meaning things that we don't mean Mm. or wanting things that we don't want or um whatever it is and but then also there's kind of that expectation that we should do that that we should anything we do in the workplace should not be because we want to do it and want to do a good job we should also be trying to get a raise or get a different job or network with people or make connections or there should be another thing that we want besides Mm -hmm. the thing itself. And I don't. I genuinely don't. I will only do the thing if I want to do the thing. Otherwise, I won't do the thing. And it has made work relationships very complicated because I'm like, that's dumb. I'm not going to do that. And they're like, but you gotta. And I'm like, there's literally no point. (laughs) why would i want to do this and they're like because it makes us look good to this person i'm like i don't give a shit what this person thinks that thing is not worth it i don't talk like that to my boss but um you like that's the internal monologue uh and i say something in a much more politically correct way where i'm like i don't think this is adding this this and this i think there's another way to do it i think we could do this instead then also it leads to that kind of naivete that people describe autistic people having that, like, you take everything people say at surface value when they may genuinely be trying to manipulate you or trying to get something out of you mm-hmm. and don't really care. Um, so there, there's this sort of double miscommunication. So, yeah, I think the autistic way of speaking is incredibly valuable. And this book does a good job of emphasizing its importance Mm -hmm. um and you and having that be his strength in how he um helps people and like helps resolve conflict um in a very direct way and doesn't he like literally have a sparring match with rosie's dad 
mm-hmm. to get him to take her to Disneyland or something. Yeah. And they end the conversation and they're like, well, problem solved. There we go. And I was yeah. like, this is amazing. Can we resolve all conflicts like this? So yeah, I was curious. Mm. When we get towards the end of the book and Don is kind of giving his rundown, he's like working through the logic of yeah. like, and ultimately ends up with, it is illogical, but I want to be with you. Therefore, like, this is love. Like, I right. love you. To Rosie. He starts with kind of the premise that autistic people have a problem with empathy. Mm-hmm. Which also makes me think, is he starting to associate with himself with autism mm. um, at that point in the book? Or recognize himself as autistic? Mm-hmm. And I was curious your thoughts, because we, mm-hmm. we've talked about this before. Uh, I don't remember if it was on the podcast or off mic of the assumption that from the neurotypical lens that, Mm. oh, autistic people have a problem with empathy. Yeah. Um, They can't be empathetic or they have a hard time. Yeah. Okay. Well, there, there's a couple things that this time around really frustrated me about the book that I didn't really pick up on. I think the first time I read it, um, the first one is something called the double empathy problem, which is that, Neurotypical people and autistic people have two different ways of expressing emotions, and we tend to understand other people's emotions when they are expressed in the same way that ours are. So we both have the same emotions, and in some cases autistic people's emotions are actually felt more strongly, but the way that they are expressed are different, and so... Empathy is basically your ability to understand what other people are feeling and then, you know, feel a semblance of it in yourself, right? Um, And it's the way that we, like, maintain human connection and it's very important, right? But if you express and receive emotion in different ways, then it's sort of like speaking two different languages at each other. And so no one's understanding. But because neurotypical people control the narrative mm. of what is what empathy is and what emotional communication looks like, they then assume, because autistic people don't communicate in the same way, that they just don't have emotions or can't understand other people's emotions. But when you have someone who's able to kind of translate between the two, you un- you discover, like, oh... We actually do feel things very similarly, and autistic people can have an incredible amount of empathy. Autistic people tend to have higher empathy for animals than humans, <laughs> um, initially, as kids, because, like, they're easier to understand for mm-hmm. us. In, and whereas humans are often uh, completely misunderstanding uh, a lot of animals, and I remember hating some kids that I was in the same circles with when I was little because of the way that they would like treat their dogs. And it's not like they were hurting them necessarily, but I was like, your dog clearly hates that. How can you not know? Mm. But they just didn't. They thought they and the dog were having fun. And I was like, no, that dog is not having fun. That dog (laughs) hates you. You don't know that. Um, And so that's part of the problem is like, autistic people have a lot of empathy. It just were missing each other it's sort of like you know those really cringy missionary stories where they show up to this people group 
and speak a different language and make all these assumptions about the qualities of this indigenous people group when, you know, they're, or like you hear about conquistadors showing up and, and talking to the Mayans and then they just kill them because they're like, oh, well, clearly you're savages. And it's like, no. Like, oh, they think we are gods. And they're like, no, in our culture, that's just a respectful thing to say to someone new. <laughs> exactly. That's how we talk to strangers. Like, they're, you know, it's sort of like that. Um, so it's more of a cultural language difference. And then the other thing <laughs> is something that really irked me this time is that Don doesn't believe that he can feel love and everyone else sort of goes along with that. They're like, oh yeah, he can't really, he doesn't really have feelings. And I spent a few years of my life being pretty convinced that I also didn't have feelings because I was like, I don't feel them. So how do I know that they're there? And what I've learned after several years of therapy is that that's a trauma response. <laughs> when your body shuts down an emotion before it can happen, that's because your body has been trained to believe that you will be socially isolated or rejected or physically harmed even if you express it. Either because the way you express it, people think is wrong. Um, a lot of times the way autistic people express their emotions is seems really weird to other people or frightening or loud or aggressive, whatever, or just like weird, you know, like, oh, you rock back and forth when you're happy. That doesn't make any sense to me. Therefore, it must be bad, you know, stuff like that. Then also, so as a result of being rejected a lot or losing people or being harmed, like eventually for a lot of people, they learn that like, oh, I just, that's not, a, I can't feel that. And so over time, your brain just starts doing it automatically and you don't even notice that it's happening. So that it's a trauma response, not like a quirky behavior thing, which is kind of how it's presented here. I don't think he fully unpacks the second layer of like, oh, Don doesn't think he can feel love because of the way that his parents treated him or the fact that people drastically misunderstood the way that he expressed his emotions and so he stopped expressing them and eventually stopped feeling them. Like, he, he doesn't go into that part, mm -hmm. uh, which is a bit dark for a romantic comedy, but um, <laughs> it just sort of is like a baseline assumption about autistic people that I think is not explored enough. Yeah, they like scratch... He scratches the surface a little bit with the, yeah. like, I don't love Meryl Streep. Like, I don't have empathy for this actress in a movie who is experiencing love, but I do have empathy and love the people in my life. Yeah. But that doesn't, yeah, like you said, doesn't fully unpack. It just, like, scratches the surface that, like, yeah. oh, there's more than one way to experience love. Yeah. But it's, like, it doesn't quite get there. Yeah. Especially because he has lived his whole life undiagnosed and he's now, what, like 30-something? Yeah. Like, that's also extremely common in people who are make it to adulthood without getting diagnosed. So they have trouble accessing their emotions. And there's a few other autistic traits of, like, autistic people feel things very, very strongly and are often hypersensitive, um, but have a very difficult time 
understanding and parsing through those big feelings. And so they get really overwhelming. And the response is then, like, really dramatic. And a lot of times kids get punished Mm. for their response. So um, things that look like tantrums, quote unquote, in autistic people are often a response to big feelings that they don't know how to explain even to themselves. Um, So it could be extreme sadness or pain or even empathizing with someone else's pain can turn into what looks like a tantrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then they get punished for that, and they're like, oh, that feeling is bad. We can't feel it anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's, so yeah. It, it all ties back to the double empathy problem. Mm-hmm. That's my TED Talk on emotions in different neurotypes. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Um, yeah. So what did we learn? What did we learn? I think this perspective is incredibly important because as we've, discussed before it's important that we see a diversity of characters in books we read but especially when it comes to relationships and romance even platonic friendships that we have more than one example of what that looks like yeah and you know there there are likely so many autistic people that are like uh eh, don's experience is really not my experience yeah. um and if he's a little exaggerated in my opinion if, yeah, if you haven't read any experiences of autistic people, like, hopefully this is, if this is your first one you read, you yeah. read more. Yeah. Uh, and the more romance and the more fiction and the more books in general you have with a diversity of opinions and experiences and point of views, um, the more we can see ourselves and then also see where we carry assumptions that we mm. shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, where something that you might have been like, I thought everyone knew mm-hmm. what that phrase means or what mm-hmm. it means when someone looks at you this way or says this thing mm-hmm. and then you realize like oh there's there's a lot of ways to see the world there's a lot of yeah. ways to be in relationship that are very valid and mm-hmm. i think especially when it comes to the romance world um i haven't read a ton of romance fiction but <laughs> growing up as a female in america mm-hmm. <laughs> um inundated with like uh this is how it's supposed to look like and it's actually a conversation i had recently um with my partner of like why do people have, he asked, like, why do people uh, have, like, expectations of what their proposal should be like before they even know the person they're going to be with? Yeah. Like, why do they set that? And I'm like, I think it's because for many of us females, we were raised being like, marriage is important. It is something you're going to do. And subconsciously or unconsciously, we're told this is what makes you valuable. Yeah. And this is a story that you're going to tell for the rest of your life. So it better be a good story. Yeah. Of like how you were proposed to. Um, And so it's kind of like put on this pedestal, but if we can see more and more stories of like, Oh, romance doesn't mean uh, Casablanca. Like the the one scene where he tries to take all of his knowledge of romance movies Mm -hmm. and like do the best proposal. It's like, Mm -hmm. he wasn't true to himself. Yeah. Um, and it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> and we can't just keep, like, parroting these ideas mm-hmm. of love if we're ever going to be experiencing love. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, or even just providing an alternative perspective on the experience of dating from, you know, someone where it's not natural for them, mm-hmm. I think is a good opportunity for people to kind of examine their own behaviors in romantic relationships and 
exploits, you know, and be like, yeah, why do we do that? And sort of emphasizing, like, everyone in Dawn's life, all of their relationships are improved when they communicate more clearly. And it's not just him who needs more clarity. Like, everyone does. And so I think it's a good opportunity for everyone to kind of examine how they talk to people mm -hmm. and that's something my therapist tells me a lot when I feel guilty about asking for more information in my relationships she's like it's good for them too yeah yeah <laughs> it's very good for them too and it makes me feel less guilty because I'm like ah oh, we all need we yeah. all need some more communication mm -hmm. so you yeah. ask the questions that it makes people stop and be like, you're right. Why do I need that? Why do I say that? Or like, yeah. what do I mean by that? I don't know. <laughs> Where did I learn that? Yeah. I yeah. realize sometimes <laughs> I have a propensity just to like make up, like I feel like I have to justify myself and it's so ingrained in me that I will justify things that one, did not require justification and two, where the justification isn't actually that valid. Like I'm just like <laughs> thinking like, um, like an example was before this podcast, like it took us a little while to turn on the mics today because we had some other work we were doing and, and I was starting to feel low energy. And ultimately what I wanted to say was, I feel a little tired. Can we, you know, can we get to recording soon? So I have enough energy to get through it. Yeah. But instead I justified all these reasons of why we should be prepping in a certain way and how much or how little we should be talking about before we get into the episode. <laughs> and it, it was just like a perfect example of like, why stopping and, and having those conversations and yeah. it wasn't like you particularly stopped me and asked like what's really happening here um I just didn't say anything you just kept talking and I was like <laughs> I think she's kind of tired <laughs> it's just I've uh I've realized it's something I do mm -hmm. and it's people in my life like you and and Varun and, and others who from time to time have asked me like you don't have to like why did you yeah feel you need to say that or like what do you really need right now and it's helped me to start doing it for myself, too. Yeah. Like, letting myself actually pause and say, yeah. like, what do I actually need right now? And being able to communicate that freely because that's, like, kind of, like, a standard you've set for our relationship. Of, yeah. like, I know Julia's going to tell me when she's tired and what energy she has. And I need to check in with myself and be able to provide the same honest feedback as well. I try it. There is something that happened in the last couple of weeks where you said something it was something innocuous about why you weren't do you remember this why you and you walked back in and you were like why the hell did i say that that was not true why? and i was just sort of sitting there confused like what's happening and you went through this whole crisis in your head of like i just made something up in order to justify why i did something that you didn't even need to know about why did I tell you that? It was, yeah, it was fun to watch. It was, you had this whole kind of like, what is happening moment. And, yeah. um, it was great. You like felt you needed to walk back into the room. I'm trying to like, a, like directly uh, address when oh, okay. I'm like straight up just bullshitting myself. Okay. And if someone else is involved, sometimes they also have to be privy to my... So it helps to like say it out loud. Yeah, to okay. recognize like, hey, Julia, I just told you a straight up lie for no reason. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. Oh my God. Yeah, I loved it. You were, you know, growing pains. You're yeah. figuring it out. <laughs> so all this to say, communication is key. 
Yeah. <laughs> All of us NTs can learn a lot from yeah. autistic communication. Absolutely. Um, are there any little um, the shout outs shout and shut downs? shutdowns? Or, oh so we're God. starting a new little segment we're starting of this a podcast new segment. where... The little bits that we don't have a chance to throw in there in our overall, you know, more directed analysis of the book. Um, so I just want to shout out the bartending scene. Oh, um, yeah. Absolutely loved That's it. That's a gold. Makes me want to go learn mixology and just yeah. make some of these drinks. They sounded wonderful. Yeah. Um, another shout out to the scene where they go to a baseball game in New York. And Don is like, I hate this. Why am I here? This is not important. <laughs> and then he really gets into the baseball stats with the guy sitting next to him and they become friends and then they like meet up later. And I'm like, this is beautiful. <laughs> Loved it. Oh my God. Yeah. There's just, when the, when the proposal doesn't go right and the waiter comes over <laughs> and Don just says, there has been a disaster. <laughs> And the waiter's like, oh, no, 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 what happened? He's like, no, 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 a personal one. <laughs> and he's so calm. And and because the waiter's like, oh, no, what did I do wrong? And he's like, no, 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 the food's great. Uh, there has been a personal disaster and we will be leaving now. And it just tickled me. I absolutely loved it. Oh, yeah, I do have a shutdown. Um, the scene where he is talking to... Jean asks him to sub in to talk to a family of parent, a group of parents who have autistic kids. And he starts talking about the genetics and um, some possible strengths and weaknesses of having autism. And the, first of all, the way that the kids respond felt very inauthentic to me. And I didn't find very funny. I was like, I don't think we would do that. I don't think kids in general. I don't, I don't yeah. I, I was like, this doesn't feel real. But then also the way that the person, the other person there who like seems to be running this program, whatever it is, is like genuinely surprised that Don thinks that there are strengths related to autism. I'm like, you're the one teaching them yeah. and you don't think there are any strengths. Of course, these kids are going to hate themselves. It really pissed me off. I was like... And, and it's pretty accurate. There, that's the way a lot of people who work with autistic kids are taught. It's like yeah. drilled into like them. You have to overcome this thing. Yeah, this is a thing you have to overcome, and it's like no one's gonna accept it, and there's yeah. nothing good about it. And we just have to fix it. Um, which is a whole other issue. But yeah, so that that whole scene kind of made me angry. But anyway, that's my shutdown for the day. <laughs> Okay, recommendations. Yes. Did you ha I know you were I just have one that has been I realized has been on my personal list. Um and it's called The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. It was recommended. I saw it recommended somewhere on social media that it was like an autist uh an autistic I believe woman of color is like the main character and so I was very intrigued. And it's nice. a, it's a romance as well. Um, my recommendation, another one, I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've, it's one of those books that I heard about it once and now I see it everywhere. Act Your Age, Eve Brown by Talia Hibbert. Talia Hibbert is a, uh, British author who's also autistic and she was interviewed on the Reading Women podcast. Act Your Age, Eve Brown is the third in a trilogy and this mm -hmm. one is a love story between two autistic characters. Cute. Um, and then I saw it recommended by, um, 
gold-plated girls which is a newsletter i subscribe to and then consensual who's uh a um like audio romance fiction um group they've been on the podcast before we interviewed them they just finished um releasing their second uh romance hookup state of mind um i just finished listening to it i'm the type of person that waits till they release all of it and then i binge it all at once yeah and i liked it more i think than the first one okay even though in like real life i'm much more of an ingrid which was their the first the the female lead in the first but yeah chloe and dean are great i love them chloe is fantastic i want to i want more stories with chloe and them. go check them out you can find them on uh we'll link it in the show notes Mm -hmm. but they're also on spotify and you can listen along yeah and the part of the show that we've all been waiting for (laughs) currently obsessed Victoria and I both have very long lists, and we promised ourselves we wouldn't sort of use all of them in one go. Yeah, I had to limit mine down. <laughs> yeah, because it's been two months, and so we've consumed some media since then. Yeah. So first of all, Julian Baker has a new album, and it's beautiful and sad, uh, just like her. And <laughs> um, So go, go listen to that. And then the thing that's uh, really kind of taken over my life... Uh, these last few weeks is a TV show called on Netflix called The Untamed, not the nonfiction book by what's her face Glennon Doyle. Glennon Doyle. It, this is a Chinese drama set in like ancient China. <laughs> there's magic. There's musical magic. That's the kind of genre it's in. It's based on a novel where it's technically a romance between two men. But it was published, like, surreptitiously by an anonymous author through Backward Channels in China. And the author has actually since been arrested. Whoa. Um, but the there's some creators and producers from Hong Kong. I was going to say, where did they make this show? Yeah, well, the they found the novel and it was really popular. And so they adapted it into a um, just not quite gay show. <laughs> it's an exceptionally queer show like if you watch it you're like oh yeah this is a love story what i'm watching but technically it's not um and they found all these really clever ways of working around the censorship laws in china and so by some miracle this show got made and it exploded all over the world it's hugely internationally popular one of the first chinese dramas that's had this level of success and so they're like, well, we can't take it down now. <laughs> it's super gay, and that's why people like it, so we're stuck. Um, and the effects are terrible. But the plot and the characters and the actors do an incredible job. It's such a journey. Like, it's an incredible, incredible story um, that's really morally complex. And there's also magic. So, and it's, a, it's, it's beautiful i'm obsessed with it i'm on my third time watching it it's so good um okay so mine this week (laughs) just to showcase how slow i am at watching television i'm still watching the west wing (laughs) just got to season three and it's great and i'm still obsessed and i'll keep talking about it till i finish which will be in like two years Mm -hmm. um okay so varun and i have been checking out more bakeries now that's like a little bit warmer we can walk more places Mm -hmm. there is one that's only open saturday and sunday in logan square near where julie and i live um called pan artisanal Mm -hmm. and absolutely delicious you have to get there early you have to wait in line but it's worth 
the wait. Um, we went to Roses this morning, which is down in Humboldt Park, and I'm real bitter every time I go because we used to live very close. Um, mm. and I never went. And then I discovered that they have not only amazing donuts and pastries, but we got like a loaf of bread today that's delicious, and we got an entire cake to celebrate. Big news. I paid off my student debt and I'm very, Whoa! very excited. Whoa, so whoa, I'm currently whoa, 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 obsessed whoa. with myself yeah. <laughs> for that feat. And I'm eating cake today to Girl celebrate. Girl is killing it. So the shout out to bakeries, bakeries. and Oh, and I debt. had an album. Yes. This was my, I, I literally played this EP as soon as I, um. so when I put in my two weeks, I started listening to Let's Throw a Party by Sammy Ray and the Friends. It's a new EP that came out and I'm obsessed. It's great. Awesome. It's it's upbeat. It's good feels. And I have it stuck in my head all the time. Amazing. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. Yeah. Welcome back to the book club. Yeah. This has been great. I've missed this. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Book Club with Julia and Victoria. Chime in with your own thoughts and recommendations on Instagram at bookclubwithjv or through the contact form on our website, www.bookclubwithjv.com. Our website is also where you can find show notes for this episode, which include links to any of the recommendations we gave or other tidbits we mentioned. Make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're currently listening, and leave us a five-star review on Apple while you're there. This episode was co-hosted and produced by myself, Victoria Bruick, along with Julia Clausen. Our music is composed by Greg Burrick. Our logo was designed by Gabby Feldland. And Rebecca Gesney is our project manager. We'll catch you all on our next episode. Happy reading!